Me father was the keeper of a fast little light, and he slept with a mermaid one fine night. Now from this union there came three, a porpoise and a porgy, and the other was me. Yo ho ho, the wind blows free. Oh, for a life on the rolling sea. In real life, few lighthouse keepers will have had the opportunity of entertaining a pretty mermaid in the manner here described. Certainly none I spoke to in the course of making this program had done so, or if they had, they were keeping very quiet about it. The world of the lighthouse keeper is in fact a lonely and mostly uneventful one. It is nevertheless of vital importance to ships and seamen, and hence indirectly to all of us. But our vision of the typical rock lighthouse probably derives from the 19th century, when the greatest of them, including the fastnet, were built. Supreme examples of pure functionalism, these wave-swept towers possess a curious remote beauty. And if they also have a faint aura of romance about them, this too is a legacy of the 19th century, and of lines such as these by the American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Like the great giant Christopher it stands upon the brink of the tempestuous wave, rising far out among the rocks and sands the night o'ertaken mariner to save. Steadfast, serene, immovable, the same year after year, throughout the silent night burns on for evermore that quenchless flame, shines on that inextinguishable light. But what sort of life do the keepers in fact lead on these lonely rock towers, especially in winter? Jim Walsh is principal keeper on the fastnet. Uh, at times during the winter, certainly in a bad week or a bad fortnight, uh, you just cannot leave at all. You're just kept in the tower. You proper. can't get outside can, the door. No, no. There's a, there's a main iron door which is closed and it's, there are heavily barricades behind it. And it's, this is closed with wheels and uh, two bars go across it. There's an inside heavy wooden door as well. You're totally, totally contained in the tower during bad weather. All the storm shutters have to be closed in case... I guess the sea comes in because last last Christmas, 12 months, the sea actually did come in and uh, it, it blew open um, an armour plate of glass, broke it, the sea flooded in and put out the generators. And I think it was the first time ever I remember uh, in history of the fastener that the, 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 the light was, was extinguished, ever, uh, because of the sea was that bad that particular night, smashed the storm shutters, came in through the glass and totally put out the generators. Past winter, uh, a pile of damage was done to the uh, rock itself, not to the lighthouse, of course, but to the base, uh, to the rock attached to the base of the lighthouse. About 40 feet was washed away of solid, solid rock. To a depth of about four, well, four foot in the centre to about um, a foot overall in, in, in the 40-foot stretch. And uh, uh, stanchions are bent just like matchwood. Uh, these are about two inches thick and uh, just bent over. Um, doors have been steel doors, have been washed away, doors have been um, broken and battered in. Uh, the sea comes up the tower, John, and um, on a really bad night, we say force 8, force 9, which is a pretty good storm. Uh, the seas come up, of course, pass by the windows. Uh, your, your, um, your bedroom is about third flight from the top. And uh, it's just like, just like being in a ship. It, almost you get seasick some, sometimes when the, you see the green water just passes by your, your window there, you know. How high up is that? Um, the uh, kitchen proper is 146 feet above uh, above low water. 146 feet above low water, exactly. And you're telling me that actual green seas come past your window. It does. It does. Yes. Yes. And I, I've seen I've seen a standing on the balcony, and and you stand underneath the upper balcony. That's, there's an overhang above your head where the seas actually 
a spray, I would say, hits the kitchen window and even up to the dome, even hits the, the lantern glass. A spray does. Not solid green water at the lantern glass, but down certainly in the bedrooms and, and the kitchen you get, a, you get solid green water. Do you feel in danger at all? Do you ever feel the fast net might carry away? No, but uh, there is a niggling doubt there, let's be honest about it. Uh, it does It does move. It does move in, the, uh, in a bad storm. And I remember in the old days uh, seeing... Um, seeing uh, um, pots and, 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 and kept moving on a range, actually moving on the range. Uh, when, a sea hit, when a sea hits it, it shudders. It shudders. It's just like as if a, a, a giant cracks a whip. You can feel it cracking. And it, there is a small movement in the tower, John, definitely. The modern lighthouse keeper is a skilled technician capable of handling sophisticated equipment. In this respect, he differs radically from his predecessors in years gone by, whose approach to the job was often casual, to say the least. In the 1830s, for instance, it was discovered that after lighting the lamp, John Bishop, the keeper at Lowestoft, thereupon locked the tower and hired himself out as a waiter in local hotels for five shillings a night. Rather more serious was the conduct of the man who quietly subcontracted his duties as keeper to an old woman. The latter lived several miles from the tower, and in bad weather, when the light was most needed, she simply stayed at home. This arrangement was revealed only after a costly shipwreck below the unlit tower. But things are very different today. As well as being a skilled professional, the modern keeper is a man with a developed sense of responsibility and commitment to his job. John Hennessy is the training officer for Irish Lights. The keepers used to go to the Bailey Lighthouse, and they learned on the job. There was no formal training system at that particular time. They learned from the principal keeper at the Bailey and then learned as they went to the various lighthouses. A kind of apprenticeship? More or less, yes. Um, Very much an on-the-job training system. Tell me how you changed all that. Well, before... In 1969, it was decided to set up a proper training school. And in 1973, we ran our first supernumerary assistant course which was basically to uh, get onto the attitude of the trainee lightkeepers, form an attitude uh, uh, which was a very formal sense of responsibility um, and included a certain amount of time at lighthouses, especially selected lighthouses, in fact. You say this sense of responsibility. What you're looking for, in effect, is old-fashioned virtues in your men. Very much so. Uh, This is what the service has been used to, and uh, we went out of our way to retain that in the training section. Tell me about your training course. What does it embody? It embodies all aspects of lightkeeping. We cover things like diesel engines, helicopters, safety and survival... Uh, working the light, operating the fog signal, and watchkeeping. Um, watchkeeping is probably one to bring out above and beyond all others at the moment, in fact, because it's an area which emphasises this sense of responsibility, in that um, lightkeepers don't really have an actual requirement to keep a lookout. But in practice, there is very little that goes on at sea that they don't, in fact, see and um, they're, they're able to pick up virtually everything that goes on around them within their area probably as far as 20 miles away 
Do they also keep a radio watch? Again, there's no requirement on them to keep a radio watch, but in practice at most lighthouses there would be a watch kept on the distress frequency, uh, particularly at the silence periods, which is on the half hour. Every half hour there's a silence period for three minutes when everybody is supposed to stay quiet and be on the lookout for distress calls. As the man responsible for their training, what are the qualities that you would look for in a good lightkeeper? Well, first and foremost, we're looking for a sense of dedication. We want the man who is prepared to go further than really a set of rules or regulations would expect. Um, When there is some sort of a problem, we want the type of man that would go in and sort the problem and then he'll discuss it afterwards but the problem is actually gone at that particular stage Um, we like a chap that is fairly technically minded we like the sort of person that would be practical uh, have good hands uh, be interested in the job and be very very adaptable because there's a wide range of subjects and uh, he has to be able really to tackle just about anything He has to be a housekeeper, he has to be a technician virtually. Um, Really, he has to be very much an individual who is able to get on by himself. Relations between lighthouse authorities and their employees have not always been perfect. In May 1740, the Deputy Master of Trinity House in London received a letter from the Keeper of St Agnes in the Scilly Isles complaining about the size of the grate provided for the nightly signal fire. He replied as follows. From Deputy Master John Werby, May 5th, 1740. Your recent communication has been read to all the gentlemen of the board, which does very much surprise us. For my own part... Plainly appears to me you are mad, and if you continue so, we must send over another man to take care of the light. I do tell you that if the grate be not as it should be, it is your own fault. You must yourself procure a smith to make such changes as you feel essential. You've written us a very impertinent letter. I do advise you as a friend to take care to the light and keep the glasses clean. And furthermore, make the grate according to your own mind, that we may have no more complaints. For I do assure you that you and your son will soon be removed, if you go on as you do, and then it'll be too late to repent. I fear you give yourself so much to drinking that you make yourself unfit for any business. I remain your friend as long as you behave yourself well. Of course, conditions were often difficult on those old lighthouses. Bill Hamilton recalls the life on an Irish rock 50 years ago. Well, it was altogether uh, 37 years permanent service, they say. The wages were very small everywhere, but they compared favourably with a a policeman uh, or a guard and uh, or a guard a sergeant like a headliner's keeper and financially he'd be as well off as a sergeant and the guards 
or even at that time a schoolmaster or uh, in, a, in a country place, well, you, you were somebody, you know, you see, but uh, nobody, nobody got great money 50 years ago. Well, of course, the work was pretty hard in this way that it was watch-keeping, mostly. And you went out to those lighthouses, especially on the southwest coast, to do a period of duty, say, of six weeks. And at the end of that time, you got a fortnight off. And you weren't released even when you went ashore. You, had a, you were based in a shore establishment. See, where, there was, where you had a house, if you were married. Even if you weren't married, there was a house there for you. You had to live in if you didn't want to go into digs, you know. You see, and look after yourself. But you couldn't leave the place. You were on duty, on call. You see, so therefore, for the whole year, apart from three weeks annual leave, you were their prisoner. Lighthouse duty requires men to live together in a tiny world of their own. How do they get on? Can life be difficult at times? Yes, yes, it's a fair, it's a fair question. I have to be honest about it, yes. Very much so at times, I suppose, really. Difference of opinions, regards, games, politics, certainly. Uh, religion doesn't come into it, but uh, we do. We do get into those nerves from time to time. We do. There is an old saying, you can adapt yourself to hell. And um, very, very seldom has there been any um, rank or anything like that. Yeah, just like an ordinary household, you have your ups and downs, and you adapt to every fellow's style and his manners. And uh, we're very fortunate in the type of person we have in the lighthouse service. Uh, I cannot say I've ever got any row with anybody on my service. You have your differences of opinion, and probably say he's an awful so and so. But it's a very good type of person that is in the lights. Very, very good. Would you say it's a special kind of man? I'd say he is. I'd say he becomes a special type of man rather than a special type of man. I wouldn't say he's a special man. He becomes a special type of man. And uh, we all get on very well. I'm not just putting this as a publicity exercise. No, we very, very seldom. We get on very well. And the funny thing about it, you'll always get a person... One fellow's good at this, another fellow's good at ropes, another fellow's good at engines, uh, some other fellow's good at something else. Like you know, it seems that it, every fellow just seems to fit into a kind of uh, a wheel, like a machine. Every fellow's a different wheel. Is a different fog? Is a different wheel? Uh, it it has always been that way. I suppose in the olden days, when you had no communication, you had no radios, it may have been a bit harder on the nerves that time, all right. But since my time. I'm in the modern age. We get on very, very well together. It's difficult at times. Um, normally, we're, ta- we're talking about three men confined on a rock for what could be up to a month, a month period. Usually, um, they get on very well. Um, it has always been my experience that uh, the men can see eye to eye all the time. I think it's we all naturally have our differences and everybody is, has their moods but when you are in such such um, a tight situation it always pays to let the little things 
go and just keep the ship going smoothly. Whatever the keeper's situation, the wives have to face their own problems, problems of loneliness and loss of communication, less acute today than in years gone by, as Jim Walsh's wife recalls. When the children were small, I think it was really very lonely. I mean, I knew that I was marrying Jim and that he would be away and that I would have to spend a lot of time on my own. But I don't think I realised that it was going to be as lonely as it actually was. Uh, You know, I found that you had all the responsibility of the children. Uh, You didn't have any contact with them in those days. That was 23 years ago now, almost. And uh, I found that... That was one of the things that got me down most of all, that I couldn't contact Jim about anything. Maybe children were sick or that, and I found it was really very lonely then. And we were usually in places where... out-of-the-way places. The dwellings were... Well, one time I remember being in Clifton, and the dwellings were not... Well, they weren't too far away from the town, but it was still lonely, and... I found that my next-door neighbours, my immediate next-door neighbours, were two single men, so therefore there weren't any small children there. And another neighbour then, the PK's wife then, she was, uh, she had a grown family. And, you know, she had her own interests and she had her own friends in the town. And that was one place that always stuck out in my mind, is really, you know, being very cut away altogether. I used to feel when I used to see the 12 pins there that... I was really trapped and, as I say, the lack of contact with Jim was one of the things that really got me down at that time. We couldn't speak with each other on the telephone. Jim could speak with us on the radio telephone now and then. Well, at least you knew he was okay and well and getting on along all right. But uh, you could never have a conversation with him and then his length of time away, I think, was was uh, very distressing too. You know, they did six weeks away and it often turned out to be nine, ten, maybe twelve weeks away. Women lightkeepers were commonplace in Europe up to the close of the 18th century and they were extensively employed in America well into the 20th. Several of the latter became famous. The Harbour Light here in Michigan City was maintained for nearly 50 years by the same woman, a Miss Colfax. It was known, in fact, as Miss Colfax's Light. The beacon was placed at the end of a long pier projecting into Lake Michigan, and even when Miss Colfax had turned 80 years of age, she could still be seen struggling along the pier against blustering winds, and sometimes gales, with a pan of hot lard oil to fill the lamp. On one night in 1886... A particularly fierce gale was blowing, and when Miss Colfax reached the foot of the pier, she noticed it was shaking violently. The old lady did not hesitate, but reaching the end of the pier, she climbed the swaying tower and trimmed the lamp. Having struggled back to the shore, she heard a great crash above the noise of the storm. The pier, tower, lamp and all had disappeared into the sea. As I said at the start of the programme, lighthouses, and in particular the wave-swept towers, are among the marvels of 19th-century engineering. However, those who built them often paid dearly enough for their achievements. 
There were several mishaps during the construction of the Fastnet Lighthouse, two men each losing an eye while another sustained a broken leg. The most serious accident connected with Irish lighthouse building occurred in 1812, however, during works on the Tusker Rock off Wexford. The Wexford Herald of October the 26th gives its readers the news under the heading A Melancholy Event, 14 Dead. Early in the summer, a Mr Needham, an eminent architect, was employed to supervise the construction of a lighthouse on the Tusker Rock, and for this purpose several experienced persons were sent down from Dublin. They first built for their accommodation on the north side of the rock, three small wooden houses, for the better security of which massy iron bars were inserted in the rock, and to them the houses were fastened by chains of an enormous size. It may not, for the information of our readers, be unnecessary to remark that the rock contains nearly two acres, and that the habitations at high water were forty foot above the natural level of the sea. Having thus given a description of their situation, we shall now relate the tragical effects of the storm. The wind was south-southeast, and it blew a hurricane. How awful is the contemplation of such a scene! About four o'clock on Monday morning, the hapless inmates were suddenly aroused by a wave breaking on the houses with a most tremendous crash, which was followed by others in quick succession, equally terrific, and instantly the boards on which they slept began to float. The poor half-dressed creatures were compelled to leave the huts and fasten ropes to headers and stretchers, stones weighing about one and a half tons each, prepared for the building, to which they clung. Now the work of destruction commenced. The houses had not been forsook more than two minutes when there was not a vestige of them to be seen. The violence of the waves increased with the tide, and the ponderous stones above mentioned were hurled about as if pebbles. Some of the persons made fast to them were killed, and others forced from their hold into the ocean. When the tide fell and left that part of the rock dry, the survivors proceeded to fasten a cable as tight as possible to two ring bolts about thirty yards asunder, to which they bound themselves by small ropes around the waist. But here, at the rise of the next tide, they had nearly the same horror to encounter, as the waves several times broke over them. At the fall of the tide, they again untied themselves and sought shelter from the butment of the building where they were discovered, about eleven o'clock on Wednesday morning, having remained since two o'clock on Sunday without any kind of sustenance. The foregoing simple narrative of distress is, we are convinced, a sufficient appeal to Irish hearts which ever melt at a tale of woe. The unhappy victims of this catastrophe met their fate while employed in the erection of a works, the want of which has consigned many human beings to a watery grave, and whose completion will probably preserve the lives of thousands. Subscription lists are open, and donations... Will so much for the problem of building a lighthouse. Until the coming of the helicopter, the problem of actually getting onto the rock was by no means simple, though two keepers we spoke to, Simon Scanlon and Jim Walsh, had differing views on the matter. The ship had to lower a cutter, and the cutter had to be rowed in under a derrick. And uh, the man... Uh, boarded a boatswain's chair or a stick and was hoisted up onto the rock by means of the derrick. So it had to be pretty good before that could be done. When you say a stick, what's that? The uh, stick was like a boatswain's chair, like a large broom handle, which he just uh, straddled and held onto a rope fall. So you were depending to a great extent on the seamanship of the people on the boat? Certainly, yes, and the efficiency of the keepers on the rock. 
who had to heave you up manually. Well, it had to be it had to be done manually. Were there many accidents? No accidents. I never heard of an accident. No. This because they only went in in fair weather. Well, no, you couldn't say fair weather. The lightkeeper and the sailors would reckon it was quite safe, but I'm quite sure that uh, if an inexperienced person saw it, they wouldn't dream of attempting it. Was it frightening? Uh, no, no, it wasn't frightening because you had complete confidence in yourself and the boatmen and the other lightkeepers on the rock. Prior to the uh, to the advent of, of the helicopter relief system in 1969, um, the fastnet. Uh, keepers on relief day, the uh, steamer, of course, anchored about a mile off the lighthouse, and a cutter oh, was lowered and, and brought in with the relief keeper or tradesman or technician. A derrick had to be rigged on the fastnet, and this, of course, is, is not kept rigged because it should be washed away. As a matter of fact, uh, it has been washed away once, uh, not in my time, but years ago, I believe, it was washed away. But this is kept in a bed and clamped down during the winter and during the summer months, and then uh, in the old days, when the uh, relief was being made, Derek was rigged and a keeper had to get up and come down on a bosun's chair and into the uh, cutter and nod time of course well with the movement of the, of the cutter he'd go into the water and get wet but nothing ever seriously happened This Derek had been the size of a good sized mast oh, okay. oh gosh yes about oh, four, four or five times the size of a oh, more telegraph pole yes indeed yes indeed yeah. And you were telling me about a place out in West Kerry, which was very... Di- well, the t- Inish Tearoct is one of the Blasket Islands. That is a very difficult place to uh, to relieve by, by steamer in the old days again. Uh, this was an aerial hoist, and the hoist was, was rigged between two points of rock across a cave, and the cutter came in again. Uh, the uh, fall was lowered. He got onto the bosun's chair, up, and then he took move along like in an aerial hoist to, to where uh, he got off to, on the rock on the platform. Was it scary? Very scary, yes. Few fellas yeah, found it very difficult. I did myself the first time. As a matter of fact, when you were younger, the, 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 they, they, they'd tie you to it, you know? They had to make a harness eventually because a lot of keepers did get scared. A few of them did get scared, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Very scary. Very scary. Many of the earliest lighthouse keepers in Europe came from the church. A manuscript of 1396 refers to the payment of toll money to one Richard the Hermit by fishermen at Bray in Cornwall, and in 1522 an indulgence of 40 days was offered to those who helped to support the chapel lighthouse above Ilfracombe Harbour. Here in Ireland, the lighthouse at Hook Point in Waterford, still in use incidentally, was maintained for many years by Augustinian monks, and in Yall, a light near the present one was kept by the nuns of St Anne's Convent. At the Reformation, however, the right to levy tolls on shipping in return for keeping a light fell into private hands, and the concept of a disinterested service to mariners gave way in most cases to pure speculation. The owner of a light on a busy shipping lane could secure a huge income, and these incomes often built up, in fact, into vast family fortunes. The Liverpool businessman, who built and maintained a primitive wooden beacon on the Smalls Reef, described his work as a great and holy good to serve and save humanity. And thereby served himself as well, for by the end of the 17th century, the income from his light had reached a figure of £11,000 per annum. Out of this, he paid his two keepers £60 a year each. With the establishment of statutory public bodies, such as the Brethren of Trinity House and our own Commissioners of Irish Lights, private owners were on the defensive. They didn't yield without a long and bitter struggle, 
even though as far back as 1616 the English Attorney General, Sir Francis Bacon, delivered a clear judgment in law favouring Trinity House. I find that the authority and trust settled in the brethren and grounded upon the skill and experience which they have in marine service cannot be transferred from them by law. As they are answerable for the defaults, so only they are to be trusted with the performance, it being a matter of a high and precious nature in the respect of the salvation of ships and lives and a kind of starlight in that element. It wasn't until the middle of the last century that control of all lighthouses was finally vested in a central authority. Today, no light remains the property of a private individual. What exactly is the constitution of our own lighthouse service? P.G. Adams is secretary to the Commissioner of Irish Lights. The service is run at present by uh, the Commissioners of Irish Lights, who are a corporate body that came into existence in 1867. And they look after all the navigational aids around the coast, both north and south. In other words, we are a 32-county service. Um, our finances come from light dues levied on all shipping that arrives in Irish ports and it is based on the net cost, uh, the net tonnage of the vessel involved and it is collected by the customs authority before the vessel is cleared and paid into the general lighthouse fund which is held in London. There is a mistaken idea. I think that Trinity House have some control over this service, and that is not the case. We are a sister service of Trinity House. They run the English lights, and we run the commissioners run the Irish lights. The commissioners number 21 altogether, they consist of the Lord Mayor of the City of Dublin for the time being, together with three corporation-nominated commissioners and 17 self-elected commissioners who all have one thing in common, and that is an interest in the sea. But they are an honorary body and do not receive any form of remuneration. The commissioners carry out an annual tour of inspection in the month of June every year, when they go round in the Irish Lighthouse Tender Granuale and inspect all establishments in the course of about three and a half weeks. But throughout the year, regular inspections are carried out by either the Inspector and Marine Superintendent or one of his two assistants. The thing that uh, particularly impresses us is the, the cleanliness, the hygiene of everything. It seems to be almost naval. Well, it is, yes, and that, I think, is a legacy from the past which we would not like to see die. In the old days, uh, cleaning and keeping the place tidy was a form of occupation for lightkeepers during their rather tedious hours on rock stations, and it is something which has always been a feature of the service and something which I hope will continue to be a feature for many years to come. What of the future? In recent times, technology has profoundly altered the world of the lighthouse keeper, 
and will continue to do so in the years ahead, though to what extent it is still not possible to say. P.G. Adams again. The situation with regard to automation is that the commissioners have recently completed a 10-year period of automation, during which time many stations were automated and the light keepers were taken off. And we are nearing the end of this 10-year programme and it will be completed when the two light vessels that are on station at the moment, namely the Conningbeg off the Salty Islands in Wexford and the South Rock off the County Down coast, will be replaced by completely automated light vessels on which there will be no crew serving at all. But uh, technically... Uh, total automation of the coast is quite possible but uh, the commissioner's view is that they should maintain a certain number of stations around the coast at strategic points so that our communication system can be maintained and this communication system plays a vital part in the um, safeguarding of ships that may get into difficulties at sea in that they can be easily seen and spotted by our light keepers who are on watch for 24 hours a day. And also we can be of some assistance to the national lifeboats who uh, uh, use our communication system to... uh, ascertain the exact locality of any ship that may be in trouble, which is not always possible from the shore. The most important figure in the world of lights and lightkeepers is the customer. Frank Ford is captain of a B&I vessel using the port of Dublin and its facilities regularly. What's his opinion of Irish lights? Well, the mariner's opinion of Irish Light is very high. We think they're a very efficient organisation. They do a great job, and without them we couldn't provide the type of service we operate across the Irish Sea. They're totally reliable. Uh, I've never known a failure of their lights, and even if there was, I do know that they have such backup systems that there would be instantly something that would replace the main light if it went. The only case I ever knew of or heard of was uh, some years ago, the a lighthouse in the Isle of Man, which really isn't under the uh, Irish Light's jurisdiction, but the same idea had a fire in the generator room and the light was knocked out and within 20 hours, I think, they had a replacement light rigged up in some way which to warn people of the dangers of the rocks there, of the calf lighthouse. Tell me about these backup services. What do you mean by that? Uh, well, in addition to the lights, they, they provide electronic aids as well, direction finders and a raycon signal which you can pick up on your radar, rather like a, a flash shows across your screen it helps you to identify the light ship one coming into Dublin now for example is the Kish if you were approaching Dublin Bay and you saw about 10 dots on your screen you would want to know which one exactly was the Kish because they all look alike and this electronic signal comes on like, just like a little flash and that establishes for you which is the, is the light ship To a mariner like Frank Ford returning home after a long voyage the first glimpse of an Irish light holds a special significance uh, well, the one that particularly comes to my mind, I was coming back from the West Indies on a ship uh, many years ago, and uh, we were, it would have been about 10 o'clock at night, we were expecting to pick up the Connie Bay Lighthouse, and we knew from our positions during the day, from the sun sights in the early noon, what time we should be there, 
And sure enough, around about within 15 minutes of when you're expecting to see it, we saw the loom of this light. It wasn't actually the light itself, but it was a reflection off the clouds way ahead of us, and we were right on target. It was a pretty good feeling, make a landfall. And where the light invisible because of fog, the first real sign of home might well be the familiar sound of the foghorn from the Bailey Lighthouse on the Hill of Hoth. <laughs> A reassuring sound to the men who depend on the service of Irish lights. But I do think they provide a very good service. And uh, I think if all other public services were as good, we wouldn't be so unhappy about our way of life. Father was a keeper of a fast little light And he slept with a mermaid one fine night Now from this union there came three A porpoise and a porgy and the other was me Yo ho ho, the wind blows free. Oh, for a life on the road and sea. One night as I was a trimming of the glen, singing a verse from the evening hymn, a voice on the starboard shouted, Ahoy! And there was me mother sitting on a boy. Yo ho ho, the wind blows free. Oh, for a life on the road and sea. Oh, where are the rest of my children three? My mother then she asked of me. One was exhibited as a talking fish, and the other was served from a chaffing dish. Yo ho ho, the wind blows free. Oh, for a life on the rolling sea. And the phosphorus flashed in her seaweed hair. I looked again, and my mother wasn't there. But her voice came echoing back from the night. Out to hell with the keeper of the fastnet light. Yo ho ho, the wind blows free. Oh, for a life on the road and sea. Yo ho ho, the wind blows free. Oh, for a life on the rolling sea.